Well, if you turn your Bibles to Genesis 17 with me, Genesis chapter 17, we're continuing to go through the first five books of the Bible here, kind of give an overview. We're in Genesis 17, and we were in Genesis 15 last week, and we saw the covenant that God made with Abraham. Remember, God promised a covenant in Genesis 12. Then the covenant happens in Genesis 15, and the covenant is reaffirmed. There's kind of a sign of the covenant given here in Genesis 17. And in between Genesis 15 and 16, or Genesis 15 and 17 is Genesis 16. And in Genesis 16, we see an example of some covenant disobedience. Abraham and Sarah try to take matters in their own hand to fulfill the promises that God has made. Abraham is given Hagar, his wife's servant, to try to fulfill the promise of a son and things uh, don't go well there, and yet God is very gracious and all that, and you can hopefully can read that on your own, but we're going to be in Genesis 17 this morning, and it's kind of a longer passage. We normally stand when we read the scripture, and we're going to do that this morning, but don't feel like, you know, you have to stand the whole time, or if you're not able to, to stand, feel free to sit and honor God in your heart as we read this word together. So, uh, but if you're able to and would, would uh, so desire, please stand with me as we read Genesis 17. So we read about Abraham and this, the sign of the covenant that's given here in this chapter. Verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, and he has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old, shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his 
offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. You may be seated. May God bless us through the reading, teaching, and application of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this, this Christmas we are grateful for your son Jesus, for Emmanuel, for God with us. And we think this morning of uh, many who need your presence in a special way. It seems uh, this past month, two months, there have just been so many uh, heartbreaking situations of, of individuals, of families in our churches. And so we, we would ask for you to be very gracious as you are manifested in their lives. I praise you for how those who are hurting have responded and, and just the encouragement of, of them receiving the comfort from you that we are also comforted by and as they rely upon your son Jesus. We would ask, uh, Father, for you to be uh, gracious to us as we look at your word, help us to know it, to understand it, to apply it. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. Well, originally, the plan was to do two Christmas messages. We're going to do a Christmas message next week, the week before Christmas and the week after Christmas, and we're going to talk about the incarnation and and the the miracle of the incarnation, and we're going to talk about that, so two Christmas messages. And then, as I was kind of looking through where we were going to be on which day, I I realized that Genesis 17 was was this week, the the sign of the covenant given, and I thought, wow, wow. another Christmas message, because nothing says Christmas like circumcision, and what better way to really get at the Christmas story than to talk here about this issue? Uh, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm kind of kidding, but kind of not, right? I mean, if, I think the more you understand circumcision, the more you understand what it has to do with Christmas, and uh, some of our, our younger members may be saying, well, I don't know anything about circumcision, and I think it would just Here's kind of a, a, here's what you need to know, right? Uh, circumcision was a, a mark, a permanent mark that was done on the body of a male who was part of the Jewish culture that identified them as a male. And if you have more questions, kids, uh, mom and dad would love to talk with you more about that. But that's what you need to know, permanent mark, right? A permanent mark done to the body of a, a Jewish male that identified them as, as a Jew, and some of you may be older and saying, well, I, I don't understand circumcision either, okay? And here's, it's not unusual in our culture, perhaps, not to understand the theological significance of circumcision. I don't think I've ever heard a message that dealt with circumcision before, at least not very, very extensively. And uh, In fact, I was talking to a, a pastor friend this, this past week, and he told me a story that he assured me is, is true, that there was another pastor who had a person in his church who was a, a new believer, and this, this new believer had been reading through his Bible, 
kind of started the beginning, of course, starting in Genesis and was trying to, to read his Bible and be, be obedient to the Lord, to, to know what this, this Christian life was all about. And this guy came to his pastor, and this new believer, and said, hey, um, I want you to circumcise me. And then the pastor goes, what? And he's like, I've been reading the Bible. I want you to circumcise me. And the pastor's like, you know, keep reading, okay? <laughs> get to the New Testament. And, you know, and by the way, just for those of you who might ask me that question, the answer is no way. Uh, keep reading, right? But even the, even the Jewish people misunderstood circumcision, right? They didn't understand what exactly circumcision meant. They, they believed that circumcision was a means of, of guaranteeing covenant relationship with God. That you entered into this covenant through this, which was actually supposed to be a sign of the covenant. And we're going to talk more about that this morning, but here's the, the main thing that I want you to grasp as we go into this, this text this morning. What I want you to see is that all of God's revelation about salvation, all of God's salvation history points to one overarching truth, that we must believe in his son, Jesus Christ, to be saved. Even circumcision points us to that truth. And I hope that you see that this morning as we open God's word together. All of salvation history, all of God's revelation about who he is and and how he has redeemed us, and how he's brought us into relationship with us, all of that story points to, to one major truth, that salvation is only found in the person Jesus Christ, and you and I are to believe in him. All of salvation history points to that, including circumcision. So what I want to do is I, I just want to walk through the chapter together. We're going to walk through Genesis 17 together, and then after we've walked through Genesis 17 together, I want us to kind of talk about four gospel truths, truths that are related to circumcision, the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christmas, and we're going to kind of do this thing together, all right? So open up here to Genesis 17, if you're not already there, and let's kind of talk about this chapter before we get into these gospel truths. Here's, here's how we begin. It says that in 17, uh, verse 1, it says Abraham was 99 years old, and so some 13 years have taken place between Genesis 16 and Genesis 17, 13 uh, pretty long years, probably. In Genesis 15, when this covenant with Abraham was made, Abraham was already pretty old, right? He's in his 80s. And even though Abraham is old, God tells him that I'm going to give you a son, and these descendants are going to be your descendants, and there's going to be a great nation. And that seemed a little far-fetched at the time, right? But what does Abraham do? do? He believes in the Lord, and the Lord reckons that to him as righteousness. We saw that in Genesis 15. Well, now we're 13 years beyond the chapter that came after that. So Genesis 16 comes, now we're 13 years beyond that. Abraham is now 99 years old. And what before had seemed very improbable now just seems absurd. It seems absolutely absurd. And God appears to Abraham, and he says this in verse 1. I am God Almighty. I'm God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And so he, first of all, he tells Abraham, I'm God Almighty. I'm El Shaddai. And this is the first time that phrase had been used to describe God. I'm God Almighty. I have the ability to do that which I promise and I am promising this to you. What I want you to do is walk before me. And that phrase, walk before me, was a phrase that a, a royal personage could use to describe what 
someone who is representing him should do. So there'd be the royal king, and then his ambassador or his emissary would go before him, right? So that was what someone who would walk before a royal personage would do. They would represent that person. They would be their ambassador. And God is saying to Abraham, I want you to walk before me. I want you to be the one who represents me. And he says, what else? I want you to to do what? I want you to be blameless. God has placed Abraham in a very special place in the world, in the ancient world. The land that God has promised to Abraham is is right there on the intersections of of major trade routes, of major nations and kingdoms are going to, empires are going to be on either side of them. There's going to be the Egyptians, and there are the Egyptians there in the the east as as they they grow into empire, and then there's going to be the Assyrian Empire and the, the Babylonian Empire in the west. And so God is placing Abraham at a very strategic point in the world, a strategic place in the world. He's saying, I want you to be my my ambassador, I want you to walk before me. I want people to know Yahweh through you and your descendants, and I want you to live righteously. That's what God is saying. And then what else does he say? He says, I want to make my covenant between me and you, and I want to multiply you greatly. He said, well, hasn't, hasn't he already done that? Is this a second covenant? No, this isn't a second covenant. This is God confirming his covenant, ratifying his covenant, and giving him a sign of the covenant. In any human relationship, there are times where we need to define exactly what our responsibilities are. And what God has done here is said, okay, I promised this to you in Genesis 12. I made a covenant with you in Genesis 15. And now we're going to ratify this covenant. And we're going to talk about what each of our responsibilities are. I'm going to talk about my responsibility, your responsibility, Sarah's responsibility. We're going to talk about Ishmael and Isaac. God says, we're going to talk about our responsibilities, and I'm going to go first. Look at the text there, and look at what God says he's going to do. God's responsibilities are are several part. The the first thing that we see that God has a responsibility to do is he says, I'm I'm going to make you fruitful. He says, verse 4, my covenant's with you. You're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. He gives them a new name here. He says, your name isn't going to be Abram, but Abraham. It means the, the father of many or the father of many nations. I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. So he, he says uh, this is going to be a, a covenant in which I, first of all, first responsibility, I make you fruitful. It isn't just to, so you have a, a lot of kids at Thanksgiving dinner. The purpose is political here. There's a kingdom that's coming. Nations and kingdoms are going to come from you. That's his first part of his responsibility. We also see that God has a responsibility to make this an everlasting covenant. This isn't a covenant that God says, okay, if you, you do this for a while, I'll be in covenant relationship with you. No, God says this covenant relationship is a, a permanent relationship. He says in verse 7, I'm establishing my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations, an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring. It's, it's permanent. So God says, I'm going to make you fruitful. This is going to be an everlasting covenant. And then the third aspect of God's responsibility we see see there in verse 8. He says, I'm going to give you land. I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, as we talk about the Abrahamic covenant, this covenant that God makes with Abraham, we, we refer to it as an unconditional covenant. God has sovereignly promised these things to, God, to Abraham in Genesis 12. He covenants with him in Genesis 15. There's no stipulation placed upon Abraham. 
And then here, he says, this is what I'm going to do. There's a certainty to it. And then at the same time, though, look at verse 9. And several times in this chapter, God's going to say, and as for, and he's going to say someone else's name, like as for you, as for Sarah, as for Ishmael. He's going to talk about how they fit into the covenant. And in verse 9, God tells Abraham that he has some responsibilities for him. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that God has said, I'm going to do this, and now he's placing some conditions on it? He said it was unconditional, and now there's some conditions placed on it afterwards? I don't believe so. I believe there's a tension here between God's divine sovereignty and human responsibility, a tension that plays out even in our salvation, right? What God is saying to Abraham is, I've sovereignly ordained that this is what's going to take place. But you still have responsibilities in this covenant relationship. And in my sovereignty, in my care for you, not only have I sovereignly ordained the end of how things are going to play out, I've also sovereignly ordained the means by which I'm going to bring these things to fruition. So now he tells Abraham what his responsibility is, and look at that in verse 9. He says, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, okay, you you and your offspring after you, okay, so there's this long-term obligation that they have to be in relationship with God, and then he tells them the, the content of what he's asking them to do in verse 10. Here it is, verse 10, every male among you shall be circumcised. He tells him in verse 11, it's a sign of the covenant. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, this, this permanent mark on the body of all males who would be his descendants. He says, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, what does that mean, that it's a sign of the covenant? That's a very important word there, sign. It means that circumcision isn't the covenant itself, right? It's, it's a sign of the covenant. We're going to look at Romans 4 later this morning, but let me just kind of read Romans 4.11. It says that Abraham received the sign of of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe. Now, what this means is that circumcision was not the covenant itself. It was the sign of the covenant. Every every Thanksgiving, or most Thanksgiving, uh, the family and I will travel down to, to Texas, and there's kind of like little, little spots that we kind of look for on our journey to Texas, little cities that were kind of, I don't know, just kind of cities appeal to me for different reasons. And one of the cities I've always liked is, is Joplin, Missouri, for example. And I like, I like Joplin because it's not Oklahoma, you know, and being from Texas, it's not Oklahoma yet. And so you kind of, you kind of look for these, these different, um, you look for these different signs and you see, okay, Joplin, I'm kidding, those of you from Oklahoma. Uh, uh, if Greg's here, sorry. Um, you know, there's, there's this uh, sign that says 100 miles to Joplin or 90 miles to Joplin, 85 miles, whatever it is, right? And so what is, what is that sign? It's, it's directing me to Joplin. It's letting me know something about Joplin. It's in this direction and you're this far away. You're on 44 and Joplin's beyond. Right? Now, Joplin is not the sign, right? You don't stop at the sign that says 30 miles to Joplin and say, oh, we've arrived. This is it. This is it. Joplin. That'd be silly. The same is true with circumcision. And and the Jews had really misunderstood this in the centuries after what happens here with Abraham. Circumcision isn't 
the covenant, it's, it's a sign of the covenant, it's pointing to the covenant, the reality of the covenant that Abraham had entered into, Genesis 15, where he's approved by God, justified by God by faith. It's a sign that points to the reality, not the reality itself. It's not the essence itself. Then uh, keep on going here in the chapter, verses 12 and beyond through 14, you see some more specifics about how circumcision was to take place. It says, they're eight days old and they're circumcised. All the males, whether they're uh, your own children, they're brought into your household, everyone is to be circumcised. And he says in verse 14, anyone who isn't circumcised is cut off from his people. He's, he's broken the covenant. It's not the essence of the covenant, he's broken the sign of the covenant. Then we see Sarah's responsibilities. Remember, verse 15, as for Sarah, your wife. And he gives, God gives Sarah a new name. It's not Sarah, it's Sarah. Both names mean princess, but, but this is kind of a newer form of that phrase, that word princess, and it indicates this new relationship with her, and he, he promises the same blessings for her. Kings, nations will come from her. Abraham laughs, and in verse 18 he says that Ishmael might live before you, and God says, no, but this, this union with Sarah is going to be the union through which I bring your son, and the one through whom I'm going to establish my covenant. And then he says, as for Ishmael, so here's Ishmael's relationship to the covenant, he's not part of it. I've heard you, I'm going to bless him, yeah, but, but the covenant is going to be through Isaac. And then what does Abraham do? As God reveals this to him, he, he acts in obedience, right? The last part of the chapter, Abraham fulfills the sign of the covenant. As a person of faith, he believes God and he he circumcises everyone in his household. Now, people should have understood what circumcision meant, right? We're going to talk more about this later, but, but Moses is clear on the purpose of circumcision. Abraham is clear. Paul is going to be clear on circumcision. And yet, it was misunderstood. It was misunderstood. Instead of seeing circumcision as a sign of the covenant, it's, okay, here's, here's this, this sign that points to this relationship with God that's entered into through faith, and then we walk in obedience before him. It was misunderstood, and people began to believe that circumcision itself was the covenant and that one entered into relationship with God through circumcision. In fact, some throughout the centuries, some Jewish rabbis taught that Abraham sat at kind of the, the gates of hell, and as, as people would, would come by, he would grab out those who had been circumcised. Some rabbis taught that for a person to go to hell, uh, and they, if they were circumcised, the circumcision would have to be reversed. You'd have to remove that permanent marking from the Jewish body because such was the importance of circumcision. In fact, one rabbi said that all of, not, not to get too hyperbolic here, but all of heaven and earth, this rabbi taught, was held together by circumcision. You know, that, that sign of the covenant preserved the universe, right? Which seems like an exaggeration, right? Greatly misunderstood. But how do we understand it rightly? As Christians, coming to Genesis 17, people who are not part of the Jewish faith, those of us who believed in Jesus Christ, we've been told that circumcision is not necessary for, for believers. How, how do we interact with what's happening in, in Genesis 17, especially on December 13th when we're supposed to be talking about Christmas, right? Let me give you four gospel truths that are, four truths that are related to the gospel that, that deal with circumcision here. here. Here's the first one. Here's the first one. So we talk about the gospel, Christmas, and circumcision. Number one, 
circumcision marked out who was and who wasn't part of God's covenant community. Circumcision marked out visibly who was and who was not, just as importantly, who was not part of God's covenant community. In other words, there's an exclusivity to, to circumcision. If you don't get circumcised, what does God say? It says that any uncircumcised male is cut off from the people. He's broken the covenant. He, he's indicated that he is not in faithful obedience to God and his covenant. He's cut off, not circumcised, not part of the covenant community. At the same time, and we're going to see this more as we go through the Pentateuch, at the same, so there's an exclusivity, there's, there's, there's boundaries drawn to say you're out of the covenant community, but the cool thing is there's also inclusivity. In other words, here's, you're out of the covenant, but you can become part of the covenant community through visible means. God tells Abraham, look, I want you to go before me, and he doesn't say I want you to go before me so you can go around telling everyone how lucky you are and how poor they are, that they don't get any relationship with me. No, he says, I want you to go before me so that other people can know how they can enter into the covenant community. Remember, God strategically places Abraham at the intersection of of the world there so that kingdoms can know about Yahweh God. It's not accidental. It's not happenstance. It's part of God's sovereign plan. God wants Abraham to go before him to walk blameless. He wants his descendants to do the same so that people can worship Yahweh God. And circumcision is a visible means so that people can open in out. This person, Jew, this person, not. There's an exclusivity and yet an inclusivity as well. A couple weeks ago, I was going out to dinner and, and ice cream with my youngest daughter. We kind of had a special daddy-daughter time there. And as we were going out for ice cream, I had been told by the rest of the family that some of the best ice cream in the area where we were to get was was Costco ice cream, which seemed not true to me. But uh, we're there in East Pure. I said, okay, we'll, we'll go to Costco. And uh, I had never, up until that night, a few weeks ago, I had never stepped inside a, a Costco before. Not, nothing theologically wrong with it, just um, shopping. And uh, I knew, though, that you needed a membership card to, to really be able to, to explore the, the beauty that is all of Costco. But I also knew that you could get ice cream without it. So we walk in, we walk into the, um, into the store there, and there's a, like to the left, and it says exit. And so, okay, I probably shouldn't go in there. And then you see another sign that says entrance or enter or something like that. And so I, I start walking that way, and uh, security caught me, you know, and they tackled me to the ground and said, excuse me, where's your Costco membership card? And I said, I don't have one. They said, get out of here. You're worthless. And... You know, it, okay, they didn't literally do that, but emotionally they did that to me, and very traumatic. And my daughter, you know, my daughter who knows the ins and outs of Costco, is back there going, "Oh, Dad, this is so embarrassing." And she's like, "Dad, the ice cream's over here." So we went over to the ice cream, and we were able to sit there and and eat the ice cream and watch everyone else shopping. But there were like barriers preventing us from being able to to spend money in this store. You know? It just seems crazy. But membership, right? membership. I'm out. I don't have a card. I don't get to, I don't get to experience the, the blessings of Costco. I'm out. I'm excluded. There's a clear demarcation between those who can and can't shop at Costco. And the same is true here of the Jewish community. We see here that, that it's important to publicly identify who is and is not part of God's covenant community, right? Now, does circumcision save? No. 
Did circumcision justify a person before God? No. But circumcision identified who was and was not part of God's covenant community, and those who were were to walk in obedience to him. Now, just a couple thoughts of application. As we think about how do I enter into relationship with God, we need to very clearly understand I don't enter into relationship with God just by being around other Christians. I don't get to be a part of the covenant people of God just by thinking nice thoughts about Jesus or being born into a Christian family. That's not how I appropriate the covenant. It's not how I become a part of the covenant people of God. I do so by faith, which circumcision points to. The other thought of application here. I want, to be, I want to be careful here with, with this point of application, but it's something we're going to be talking about in a few weeks. And it's just this. I would say another point of application is that public identification with the people of God in the church is important. And I would say membership in the church is important. We're going to talk more about this in a couple of weeks, so I don't want to use all my illustrations now because i got some good ones. But... Um, you know, on a Sunday morning, the reality is probably almost half, if not maybe even slightly more, of the people who come to Bethany Community Church on a Sunday morning are not members, right? Haven't become members of the church. Usually, that's because of, of, of a couple reasons. Uh, one, newer to the church, and so you know, I think that's good to take some time to say, okay, is this where God would be calling me to, to worship? And, and then the, uh, the other major reason is, oh, I keep forgetting which uh, we'll talk about that in a couple weeks. I'll give some reminders. I'll just start hounding you with texts every morning, uh, things like that. But uh, the the point is, I I think public identification with the people of God, public identification with the people of God, however it it manifests itself in a culture or community, is, is important. It's important. Circumcision said to the world around you, look, these are those who are part of God's covenant community. How do we enter God's covenant community? Through the gospel. Circumcision points to the gospel in that way. Number two, a circumcision promised Israel that God was bringing a kingdom and a king. And over and over again, as we go through this text, we see this idea of nations. He says, um, I'm going to make verse, uh, this verse five, I'm going to make you the father of a multitude of nations. He, he says that uh, as he talks to Sarah, your, your wife is going to bear you a son and, and uh, nations will come from her, right? She's going to be blessed in that way. And more specifically, we know, as we read through Scripture, as he talks about kings, there's one important king who's going to come from Abraham, a king who was born on Christmas or Christmas-ish, a king whose birth we celebrate at Christmas. And as we think about that, we, we see that circumcision is, is promising, ultimately, this Messiah, uh, circumcision was this, this visible reminder that a, that a seed was coming, that a descendant was coming through the male line. And, and it, was, it was saying, look, there's, there's a coming king, there's a coming Messiah. It was a visible reminder of that. Circumcision promised Israel Jesus. Promised Israel Jesus. It was a, it was a commitment. You couldn't have a half-hearted allegiance to this kingdom. You were all in through the act of circumcision. I was thinking this, this past month we were in our fam- with our family there in, in, in uh, Texas and we're talking about the Olympics and we're talking about, uh, one of the family members mentioned, it just kind of made her uncomfortable sometimes, the, the level of dedication that it took on the part of these young children to become Olympians. You think about a gymnast and for every gymnast you see who 
wins a medal or, or does well and has made it to the Olympics, or, there are thousands who have sacrificed their whole childhood so that they could have a chance at the Olympics and not made it. She goes, boy, that just kind of makes, makes me uncomfortable, and we kind of talk through that. But think about this. Circumcision said, look, this is commitment, and you're committing to this, this future kingdom, allegiance to a future king, no half-hearted commitment to the Messiah. A third gospel truth here is this. Circumcision reminded Israel that the true people of God were those who believed in him, for those who placed his faith in him. In other words, salvation was not by works but by faith. Circumcision reminded Israel of that truth. Now, did it get twisted and perverted? Absolutely. But as we look at Scripture, Scripture was clear, even the Old Testament, that circumcision could also be used as a metaphor for what was supposed to be true spiritually. So circumcision was a physical act that publicly identified people as Jews, but it was also to be used as a spiritual metaphor to point to the essence of the covenant. Remember, The sign of the covenant wasn't the same as the covenant. It was to point to the essence of the covenant, which was you enter into relationship with God through faith. Moses in Deuteronomy 30 would describe it this way. He he was talking in Deuteronomy 30 about the blessings and the curse and time of repentance. Whenever the people would be uh, coming back to God, there'd be a time when they were disobedient to God and would be exiled, and there'd be a time of repentance. And verse 3 of Deuteronomy 30 says, Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will... Gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And then he says this in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 30, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offsprings, that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. In other words, circumcision was to be this, this metaphor of what was to be true of us spiritually. There was to be this, this repentance in our hearts. Jeremiah chapter 4, circumcise yourself to the Lord. That's Jeremiah 4, 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Jeremiah chapter 9 talks about the nations and their disobedience to the Lord. And he says, all, all these nations are uncircumcised. And he says, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in their hearts. Circumcision was to be this reminder of what had taken place in Abraham's life. And even as one thought about the act of circumcision, it was to, to point people to the reality that they were to place their faith in Jesus, to place their faith in the coming Messiah, to place their faith in God in order to be just before him and then to walk in obedience. In fact, turn your Bibles to to Romans 4. And we see here in Romans 4 this fleshed out more fully. Romans 4, we were in it last week. It's, It's extremely powerful passage to understand the meaning of Abraham's life. And we come to Romans 4, and we looked at the first seven verses, especially kind of talking about Abraham being justified by his faith. And then you come to verse 8, and he says, is this blessing, and the blessing he's talking about here is the blessing of righteousness. And remember in chapters 1, 2, and part of 3, he's been talking about the need for righteousness, and then how it comes by faith. 
And then he says, is this blessing, the righteousness that comes through faith, is it only for the circumcised? In other words, can only the Jews get this salvation? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? So Paul's saying, look, here's the logic. We're saying that Abraham was justified by faith. Now, who gets this righteousness? If, if people are justified by faith, who gets it? Is it just the Jew or is it everybody? When did Abraham receive this righteousness? He says it was before he was circumcised, verse 10. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The point was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. In other words, Genesis 15, in which Abraham is declared righteous, comes before Genesis 17, in which circumcision takes place. What that means is that a person doesn't need to do anything to be justified, Paul is telling the Jews, and I'm telling you. Because many of us are tempted to believe that there are two or three things that we must do in order to really be right with God, right? For the Jew, it was circumcision. The Jews, and remember in the book of Acts, they're struggling to understand the gospel. Like, okay, I get it. Believe in Jesus. Believe in, they say, believe in Jesus. Peter says, believe in Jesus. And then yet, then there's this idea of, oh, and you don't have to be circumcised? That, I don't know. I mean, I know, believe in Jesus, yes, but also you should probably be circumcised. You should definitely be circumcised. You need to become a Jew. Believe in Jesus, yes, but also be circumcised. Peter struggles. Paul talks about having to confront Peter in Galatians. We talked about that last week. There are two or three things that are in, in your, on your list, right? Yeah, believe in Jesus, but there's two or three things that you also need to really do if you're going to be justified before God. A person cannot be justified before unless they also do the, in, something about reading the Bible or something about praying at a certain time. Do these things and be justified. Circumcision it's a sign, it's not the essence. The Jews had misunderstood it. They'd seen the sign that said Joplin 30 miles and they just camped out there and said, I love Joplin. It's like the, it's like the little wrapper on a two liter bottle of Coke, right? There's, it says Coca-Cola Classic and it's, it's a label that says what's inside the bottle. The Jews had taken off the label and said, look, here's, here's Coca-Cola Classic. It's not the essence of the covenant. It's just a sign that points to it. it it says this is what it's all about. Circumcision was, was to be a reminder. Hey, Israel, remember Abraham. And remember what he did. Remember what he did in, I wouldn't say Genesis 15, but Genesis 15 that, that caused him to be righteous before God. He believed in God. He believed in God's promise concerning a seed, concerning a son, concerning a descendant. You need to believe that as well. Here's a sign of that. But they missed it. But it's so very, very clear in Scripture. You're saved by faith and not works. It's hard for us to accept that, but it's so, so true. It's the gospel. Just this past week, you know, I've mentioned uh, there have been so many families who are struggling. And I was talking with one family who's, who has uh, had a, a family member with some health problems, and they were wrestling with whether this, this family person had truly placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And they didn't know, and, and I don't know, of course, but we just thought about this truth here in, in Scripture, this, this truth that we see in Deuteronomy. 
Remember, we looked at Deuteronomy 30, and that, that faith isn't some work we do. Salvation isn't something we do in order to be found acceptable to God. Faith is simply trusting in God. And I said, you know, we talked about this family member and said, you know, there's no work this family person has to do in order to be found right before God. All they must do is, is place their trust in him. Deuteronomy 30, we read the first 10 verses or so. Verse 11 talks about this commandment. He says this commandment, and we think sometimes about Deuteronomy, all these laws, and listen to what Moses says about the law. He says this commandment that I command you, it's not too hard, it's not too far off. This commandment, this idea of how you can receive righteousness, it's not in heaven that you have to go to heaven to get it. It's not beyond the sea that you have to descend to the abyss or go across the sea to get it. But what does he say? He says in verse 14, the word is near you. It's in your mouth, in your heart. You can do it. In other words, the, the law isn't some, some complicated thing that you have to do in order to be found righteous before God. The essence of it is, is belief. This is verse 16. Obey the commandments of the Lord your God by loving the Lord. Walking in his ways comes after that, he says here in Deuteronomy 30. Romans 10 describes this reality. Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30. He says, the righteousness based on, based on faith doesn't say, I got to ascend to heaven. I got to ascend in the abyss of the sea. It says what? The word is near you in your heart and your mouth. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, the mouth one confesses and is saved. The gospel is simple. It's simple belief. And circumcision was a visible reminder to the people of Israel. Look, here's how our father Abraham entered into a covenant with God. It was through faith. But here's the fourth gospel truth. Here's the fourth gospel truth. Circumcision called God's people to covenant obedience. Abraham was to do what? He was to walk before God, to be his emissary, to be his ambassador. How? How? By walking blamelessly, by being righteous. That's how. Circumcision was a reminder to the people of God, we've entered into this covenant with God in a special way, by faith, and now we need to live like it. God had ordained not just the end, but, but the means by which his people were to walk in obedience. We see this in the New Testament as well. Ephesians 2 describes how God saved us. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God, rich in mercy, saved us by grace. We receive this by faith. Verse 8 of Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. But then we come to verse 10. Why are we saved? Why are we saved? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's why God has saved us. Did circumcision save Jews? No. A person can say, I've been circumcised, therefore I'm safe, therefore I'm in. You can't do anything about it, God. I've got circumcision, so I'm in. But a person who refused circumcision was saying something about the relationship with God, weren't they? A person who refused either physical or spiritual circumcision in the Old Testament, a person who refused physical or spiritual circumcision was saying what? They were saying, I am not a part of this covenant. By their actions, they revealed that they had no faith. By their actions, they revealed that they had rejected the covenant. That's what circumcision, spiritual and physical, teaches us. That's what it teaches us today. 
You and I are not saved by works. We're not saved by baptism. We're not saved by any sort of outward thing that we can do. We're saved simply by faith. And yet, what does disobedience reveal? Continued, persistent, willful disobedience without a desire for repentance reveals that we have not entered into the covenant community through faith. And that should be a very scary thing for us as we think about the state of our souls. Brothers and sisters, how beautiful is God's word, right? How beautiful that all of salvation history, every aspect of God's revelation of himself to us points to one overarching truth, the beauty of his son Jesus and the necessity of living life by faith in him. All of salvation history points to that, even circumcision. And that's a beautiful, beautiful Christmas truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you for the life that we have through faith in him. We pray that this this Christmas season that we will be aware of your presence with us. And as we're aware of your presence with us, we communicate that to others. And that others are able to see our faith in your son Jesus and see it lived out. And give us great joy in you. We pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen.